Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, it says, Immediately the Spirit drove him, that is Jesus, into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and angels ministered to him. The Gospel of Mark begins with a witness from the Old Testament and in verses 1 through 3. It continues with the work of John the Baptist in verses 4 through 11. And now the focus is going to be on the wrath of Satan in the wilderness in verses 12 and 13. As we have opened up Mark's Gospel, we noticed Jesus came. From Nazareth. Verse 14. Now after John was put into prison. Jesus came to the Galilee. Now I want you to focus just for a moment. He comes from Nazareth. To identify with sinners. Jesus came. And was. Tested. The test will be severe. The test will include. Attacks. On his body. On his soul, on his spirit. Question. When you were growing up and there were pop quizzes, you went to school, the teacher opened up the text and said, put away your materials, we're going to have a test. Are you the kind of person who loves and welcomes a test? Most of you, no. Remember, tests will typically fall into two categories. Those we love and those we hate. Now, typically, if you're a normal person, you conduct tests all the time. If you buy a car, typically you won't drive that car or you won't buy that car unless you drive the car. Typically, you'll go and you'll kick its tires for reasons that you have no idea. You just saw your father kick the tires and you think it's your responsibility to kick the tires as well. We test things. We typically do not allow people to drive on the roads unless they've passed a test. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some people need to renew that test. A test provides opportunity to demonstrate knowledge or competency in a specific field. Let me define our terms just for a moment. Let me ask you a question as we define our terms. Do you think God allows people to be tested? I think that that's the right answer. God does allow people to be tested. By the way, how is testing different from temptation? Temptation carries with it the idea of a solicitation or an invitation to do that which is wicked or that which is evil or that which is wrong. Does God allow tests? Yes. Does God tempt us? I'm going to suggest to you no. In other words, God never solicits someone to do that which is wicked or evil. And the reason why we know that is from James. Remember, James wrote in James chapter one, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, 
I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. In what way? God never solicits anyone or invites anyone to do that which is wicked or that which is evil or that which is wrong. As a matter of fact, in James chapter one, verse 14, it says, but each one is tempted when he or she is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So the Lord God never solicits or invites Anyone to do that which is wicked or evil. Will the Lord allow tests and trials and storms? The answer is yes. The storm makes the tree strong. The storm makes the Christian strong. No branch escapes the pruning knife. No jewel the polishing wheel. No child, hopefully, the correction rod. If you refuse to discipline a child, what are you going to wind up with? An undisciplined child. If you refuse to polish the diamond, what are you going to be left with? Just another rock. If you refuse to prune the tree, what are you going to be left with? A tree that probably doesn't produce fruit. And so, as we look at this particular passage, we look at the servant's temptation. Jesus will be... Approved by the Father and filled with the Spirit. But he's also going to be proven and tested. Look at verse 12. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. There's that word again. Immediately. Again, it speaks of haste and it speaks of the fact that things are going from one particular circumstance into another. He has been baptized in verse 9. And in verse 10, remember, he came up out of the water. Remember, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, descended upon him like a dove. Remember in verse 11, a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He is approved by the Father, He is equipped by the spirit and now he is going to be proven and tried and tested as a matter of fact i want to point something out to you it says the spirit speaking of the holy spirit drove him into the wilderness does that surprise you does it surprise you that the holy spirit drove him into the wilderness matthew's gospel puts it this way then jesus was Led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter four, verse one. The temptation and test of Jesus comes immediately after the approval of the father and the equipping of the son. It takes place immediately after his decision. To obey his father in the ministry to which he is called. The moment that Jesus resolves to fulfill the task that's assigned to him. The temptation begins. Now most scholars believe that the entire ministry of Jesus probably only lasted about 36 months. And it provides a clue for each and every one of us. Our temptations often take place when we make the specific task to honor and obey the Lord. 
The reality is, do you want to avoid the test? Do you want to dodge the temptation? Then guess what? Never decide to do anything for God. Do you realize that the moment that you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the moment that you said no to sin and yes to salvation, the the moment you said no to unbelief and you said yes to belief, the moment you said, you know what, I wonder if it's all true. I wonder if the Bible is true. I wonder if the sacrifice of Jesus is for my sin. I wonder if I can experience salvation. And you bow your head and you pray that prayer. And all of a sudden, and I I mean this most recently, Respectfully, all hell breaks loose. Because remember, before you became a Christian, before you resolved to honor God or obey God, the moment you resolved that you were going to cooperate with God and the Holy Spirit and the plan that he had for you, the temptation sets in. Before you became a Christian, you were no threat. I'm going to suggest something to you. I'm going to suggest to you that the unbeliever and the make-believer aren't tempted by Satan. Because they're no threat. They're already on the side that they need to be on. But also I'm going to suggest to you that the test begins or the temptation will often begin the moment you resolve that you're going to honor God. You're going to obey God. You're going to break off from that wicked relationship. You're going to honor God. You're going to obey God. You're going to follow God. And often our temptation takes place in what seems like isolation. As a matter of fact, in verse 12, when it says immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness, most church fathers place this wilderness experience as you leave Jerusalem and you're on the road to Jericho. There is a vast wilderness that that begins to open up for you. There's rocky mountains and craggy crevices. There are jackals and hyenas. There's an empty desert between Jerusalem and Jericho. It is rocky. And it is barren. And sometimes after you determine that you're going to honor God and obey God, there's a sense of isolation, loneliness, emptiness. Some people think, well, wait a minute, I've just accepted Jesus Christ. And sometimes you feel something, sometimes you don't. But I know that when I received Christ as my Savior, there was this sense of relief. There was this immediate sense of. Of I, I understood that the, the forgiveness of God and the presence of God and the favor of God and the power of God. And then I woke up one morning. And I didn't sense his power and I didn't sense his presence and I didn't sense his favor. And I could hear a voice whisper in my ear. The power of God is gone. The presence of God is gone. The promises of God and the favor of God are gone. You're on your own. And you see, we live in a world and we live in a culture where we are so feeling dominated. We are so feeling oriented that if we feel like we're good, we're good. And if we feel like we're bad, we're bad. If we feel great, we think we are great. And if we feel a particular way, we allow our feel feelings to drive us. And so when we wake up in a fog, we wonder where to go. 
I read the story of a pilot who was experiencing difficulty in landing his plane and and the airport decided that they were going to bring him in by radar. And as he began to receive directions from the ground, he suddenly remembered that there was a pole in the flight path and he appealed in a panic to the control tower. And the reply came bluntly, you obey instructions, we'll take care of obstructions. That's how many Christians sometimes hesitate To trust God's word and obey God's word. You feel like you're in the dark. You feel like you're in a fog. You feel like that you're you're not hearing and you remember that there are perils and there are problems and there are things that might, might hurt you. The new Christian is often tempted and tested. Why? Satan attacks. Because Satan wants to attempt... To overthrow the new believer's newfound faith, Satan will attempt to create doubt, to question, to choose another way, to look in a different direction. A direction where you get to hold on to your sin. And so we begin to live our lives and we think, God, where are you? Holy Spirit, where are you? Where is the strength? Where is the power? And look, the temptation's application. And I need to to draw it to your attention again. The Spirit drove him you might be wondering well this doesn't seem to make sense why in the world would the holy spirit drive jesus into a place of isolation in order to be tempted by the by the devil and would god do the same thing to me by the way if god would allow the holy spirit to drive jesus into a place of wilderness does it mean that he would never do that to you can't mean that because sometimes the spirit of God will take you to a place in order for you to be proven and to be tested. Now, again, we have to understand something. Does God know everything about everything? Yeah. Does he know if you really believe him? Does he know if you really trust him? Does he know if you really love him? And you might pray and you might cry out to God and you might say, God, I believe you. Um, I trust you. I love you. Is it true? Does God know the truth? Do you even know the truth about your own heart? By the way, That word drove is very interesting in the original language. It's the Greek word ek, bale. It means to push. It means to thrust. It means to drive with force. We we often use the word as an unwelcome or an involuntary push. As a matter of fact, this same word Mark will use to describe when Jesus is confronted by a person who's demonically possessed. And when the Bible says Jesus drove the demons out of the man, it's that same word. It can mean unwelcome, involuntary. And sometimes we might be placed in a, in, in a position that is certainly not welcome and involuntary. If you woke up one morning and the Lord said, hey, I'm going to give you a choice. You can either sense my overwhelming presence, my overwhelming favor, and my overwhelming approval, or you can't sense it. You would go, I'm going with a sense it. And I understand why. 
Because to sense his power and to sense his presence and to sense his approval, it's wonderful, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful when you sense his power and his presence and and his approval? But what happens when you don't sense his power and you don't sense his presence and you don't sense his approval? It becomes an opportunity for two things to take place. One, for you to grow up and not be manipulated by your feelings. And it's another thing to prove in part to yourself what you truly believe, what you really believe about God. We see in the baptism of Jesus his resolve to follow his father's plan. And we see in his temptation in the wilderness the resources that will be at his disposal. By the way, haven't you noticed that a trial or a test can either be a stepping stone or a stumbling stone? I grew up in the Mojave Desert. There's no water anywhere, hardly. But in the Mojave Desert, it's surrounded by some mountain ranges. And on the outskirts of the desert, there was a group of mountains called the the Manzana Mountains. And there are water that comes and flows down the sides of these little mountains and hills, and they form creeks. And those creeks are the closest thing to water where I grew up. And when we were kids, we would go to this place called Deep Creek. And Deep Creek was a, would wind down a ravine and there were rocks everywhere. And when you're a little kid and you want to cross over the creek, you have to go on the rocks. And the rocks are wet and the rocks are slippery. And by the way, where there are rocks and when they are wet and they are slippery, they can either provide access to cross the creek or you can slip on the slippery rock. Have you ever slipped on a slippery rock? Have you ever placed your foot in the hopes that it would hold you firm? And all of a sudden, out from under you, you slip and you fall. And there's two kinds of falls. Falls where you get to get up and falls where you get hurt. And see, this is where the test can be a stumbling stone. Or it can be a stepping stone to get you from one place to another. You have to understand something. The tests of God are designed to strengthen us. And the temptations of Satan are designed to stumble us, to doubt God's presence, to doubt God's love, to doubt God's goodness. Ravi Zacharias was fond of quoting this poem on the occasion of testing. Ravi Zacharias said, When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man, then all the world should be amazed. Watch his methods, watch his ways, that all the world will be amazed how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, how he, for his good he undertakes, how he chooses 
whom he uses and with every purpose fuses him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. I like that. God knows what he's doing. He knows about the process. He knows about the purifying. And when the fire comes and the purifying comes, it can be very, very unpleasant. But James writes in James chapter 1 verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who... Love him. I believe in him. I trust him. I love him. Really? You believe in him? You trust him? You love him? He goes to temptation's location. Look at verse 13. And he was there. In the wilderness, 40 days. Here we find temptation's location, the wilderness, and duration, 40 days. I don't think that that number is an accident. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? For 40 days, the skies opened, the earth split apart, rain came fell on the planet, drowned the world. How many years did the children of Israel wander in the wilderness? Forty years. Forty days of rain. Forty years of wandering. Forty days in the wilderness. I don't think it's a coincidence. You see, forty seems to be the number which speaks of judgment in the Bible. Forty days... To inundate the planet. Forty years to sift, to purify, to, to create a, a group of people who are going to walk through a wilderness and then walk into a land. Jesus has been approved by the Father. Jesus has been equipped by the Spirit. But now the process begins to take place and it is forty years. Forty, excuse me, forty days. Forty days the Savior's tempted. He's tempted to doubt the Father's love. He's tempted to rely on his own power and resources. He's tempted to question hope. Now Mark doesn't describe the temptation or the victory of Jesus in that place. But we do learn something from Mark's gospel. When are we most vulnerable? When we're in an isolated place. Again, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Yes, because sometimes after an amazing and incredible experience, after we sense his power, his presence and his favor, it shouldn't shock us or surprise us to wake up the next morning and hear the voice whisper, you've lost the power, you've lost the presence and the temptation begins. But note what it says at the end of or in the middle of verse 13, tempted of Satan. It's Satan who tempts. Matthew's gospel fills in the details. As a matter of fact, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 4. 
In Matthew chapter 4, in verses 2, 3, and 4, in verses 5, 6, and 7, in verses 8, 9, and 10, many of us are going to be familiar with this story. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. The text says something pretty remarkable. It says, afterward, he was hungry. Have you ever skipped a meal? Many of you are shaking your head. Some of you are going, no, there's only one thing I like better than food. Free food and plenty of it. Have you ever skipped a whole day and not eaten? Have you ever gone without food for two days, three days? The longest I've ever fasted was seven days in a row. Just water and juice. On the sixth day, you begin to dream about food. (laughs) On the sixth day, every moment of every day, you smell every molecule that comes your way. As a matter of fact, you look at the people around you and you think of sauces that would go good with them. (laughs) There's nothing that you wouldn't eat in order to satisfy that hunger. But something happens, I understand, on the eighth day. The hunger goes away. That... There is a sense, a numbing sense when hunger goes away. You don't think about it. You don't care about it. The desire to eat completely disappears. And the ninth day becomes the tenth day. And the tenth day becomes the twentieth day. And the twentieth day becomes the thirtieth day. And it's my understanding, researchers have said that at the fortieth day, when the desire to eat again comes, there's something taking place inside of your body. Biologically, your body has consumed whatever reserves that it has and it begins to eat itself. Your body begins to turn on itself and it begins to consume itself. And so when the text says afterward, he was hungry. You're making a serious mistake. You're making a terrible mistake if you think that just because Jesus was approved by the Father and filled with the Spirit, that the real temptation and the test and the desire to eat was somehow not real. It was real. He was really hungry. Thomas Brooks writes, quote, He that will play with Satan's bait will quickly be taken with Satan's hook. James writes in James chapter 1 verse 14, our flesh is the hook. The devil has no need to tempt the unbeliever or the make-believer. The ancient Roman historian Tacitus wrote, forbidden things have secret charms. Satan is called many things in the Bible. He's called the king of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, he's called the wicked one in Matthew chapter 13, verse 38. He's called the accuser of the brethren in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. He's called the deceiver in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. He's called the tempter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. And here, and it says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, now when the tempter came to him, He said, if you're the son of God, 
command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a, the holy city, that's Jerusalem. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And again, in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said. Away with you, Satan, for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. One of the things that this story tells us is that there's no area of our life that's immune from from the solicitation of Satan. The devil focused on three things when he solicited Jesus. One was physical needs and desires. Another was about possession and power. And the third was about pride. As a matter of fact, if you flip over to 1 John chapter 2, and in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we read, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh external, the lust of the eyes internal, what I want and the pride of life, spiritual position is not of the father, but is of the world. Now, think about this for a moment. Jesus is really hungry. By the way. Is it wrong to be hungry? No. Is it wrong to eat bread? No. So why is this a temptation? Because Jesus will not use his power for anything other than to honor the father. By the way, as you follow Jesus in his ministry, that's exactly what he does. The Bible says in the New Testament, everything he he pleases the father in everything that he does. It's not wrong to want to eat. It's not even wrong to want to have a position. So why is this so wrong? And the, the answer is because Jesus is going to be satisfied in his hunger and in his position and in his throne on the father's term. By the way, is Jesus Christ the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Will he and should he be the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Yes. So what is Satan in effect doing? He's inviting him to occupy his throne in a way that is inconsistent with what God wants. Is it wrong for us to eat? No. But can you eat in such a way that you dishonor the father? Yeah, it's called gluttony. Is it wrong to drink? Not necessarily, but can you drink in such a way that you dishonor the father? 
Is it wrong to have sexual desires? No. But can you satisfy those desires in a way that is inconsistent with the word of God and the character of God? It's not wrong to want stuff or to be someone. But the temptation for Jesus is going to be to have something that's different from the way that God wants him to have it. And that's the way that temptation works. It hits in the area of weakness. And I want to remind you that for all of his wisdom, Solomon found himself in constant trouble. The Bible warned about multiplying horses and wives and gold. Solomon seemed to have little ability to say no to compromise and lustful desires. And whether he married all of those women out of lust or political advantage, the net result was what the Bible says, that his wives turned his heart away from God. It's not wrong for you to want to eat. It's not wrong for you to want to drink. It's not wrong for you to want to have a position. But here's the, 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 the challenge. It's eating on God's terms. It's drinking on God's terms. And for many people, they think, if, if I don't have bread, then I'm going to make my own bread. And if I don't have a position, then I'm going to make my own position. And if the God of the Bible doesn't show up, then I'm going to make up my own God. I'm going to fabricate him, and he's going to be the kind of God that I want him to be. You see, you may have a strong faith and you may have a deep desire to honor and please God. But there are weak spots and there are vulnerable spots and there are temptations that lurk. And so part of the challenge for us is to strengthen and protect the weak areas because we're all capable of falling. And that's why the New Testament, Paul writes and he says, I need you to take heed to yourselves. I need you to be warned because you could fall. You know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And if Solomon can fail, then so can you. You know, now would be a, probably a good time to ask a different kind of question. What can we do to endure and resist and reject temptation? Remember, resistance begins when you become aware of how Satan works. So we ask another question. Is it wrong or sinful to be tempted? The answer is no. Jesus is tempted. And you might be embarrassed or you might be humiliated when the temptation comes and you might be, be embarrassed. But, hey, you know, there's no need to be embarrassed because it's not a sin to be tempted. We sin when we give in and we disobey God. And so this becomes actually the first step. It's number one, be aware of Satan's devices and remember that temptation will come. The Bible says that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's going to be t testing and temptation. Satan will often tempt us. In a place of isolation, when we are mentally, emotionally, or physically vulnerable. And it often comes after a time of great decision. 
You see, you might show up at church or you might be at a Bible study or you might be in a circumstance where all of a sudden you begin to sense and understand that God has a plan for you and a purpose for you. And you're going to fulfill that plan and you're going to fulfill that purpose and you receive the opposition. Satan is willing to appeal to our pride and our self-sufficiency. James writes, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Resistance doesn't begin by just simply running away, although sometimes that's exactly what you have to do. You face the the object of your temptation and you run away. We pray for strength. We pray for a different course of action. I heard the story of a guy who was struggling with his weight and he said, Lord, if you don't want me to have donuts this morning... Make sure that there's not that parking spot. Make sure that all the parking spots are filled when I go by the donut shop. And sure enough, there was a parking spot and he went in. But he had circled the donut shop seven times before the parking spot opened up. I think that that's what testing the Lord really means. You have to have a plan for resisting temptation. What is your plan? Here's my plan. I have no plan. Question. Do you think that's a good plan? (laughs) I think you're right. That's not a good plan. I think that part of the plan is, again, you have to recognize the tactics of Satan You have to have a plan and you have to pray and ask the Lord to help you. You have to avoid those people and you have to avoid those places that put you at risk. And part of the plan has to include memorization and meditation on those portions of the scripture that will help you in those areas of weakness. And to memorize those areas of scripture that will help you to trust the Lord and to rely on the the Lord Remember, at the root of most temptations is a real desire. And again, the issue isn't whether or not it's wrong for you to have desires. The issue is whether or not you're willing to allow those desires to be be, to be fulfilled by God in a way that's honoring and pleasing to him. You have to eat on his terms and drink on his terms. And have the position that he has, has inscribed for you and, and, and found for you. Erwin Lutzer in his book, Ten Lies About God, relates the story of how Art Linkletter saw a young man and he was scribbling wildly on a piece of paper. And Art Linkletter said to him, hey, what are you doing? And the kid said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And Art Linkletter laughed and he said, you can't do that. The kid says, why? And Linkletter said, because nobody knows what God looks like. And the kid looked up confidently and he said, they will when I'm finished. (laughs) We laugh because it's funny. But that's exactly what we do. We scribble a caricature of who we think God is. 
We scribble a caricature and we scribble a caricature that isn't based on revelation. Remember, there's really two ways to know about God. One begins with man and you reason your way up and the other begins with God and revelation and he reveals himself down. The problem with beginning with man and reasoning your way up is almost certainly you're going to come up with a caricature. You know what? You couldn't think up the God of the Bible. You couldn't think up his self-existence. You couldn't think up his holiness. You couldn't think up his, his perfections. You couldn't think up the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You couldn't think that up. And so what does God reveal about himself? That he loves you. And that he's made a provision for your sin. And that you can be saved. And we know something else. That the moment that you embrace not the caricature of God, but rather the character of God, and you begin to understand that God is a God who loves you, and you begin to understand that God is a God who can be loved, and God is a God who can be trusted, and God is a God who is really there, then you can begin to understand and appreciate the tests. Jesus is approved by the Father. He's equipped by the the Spirit. He has been tested and approved in body, in soul, and in spirit. You know, one of the great truths in the Bible is that we have three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The truth The father has overcome the world and Jesus has defeated the devil. And you've been given the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. So that when you sing, this world has nothing for me. The father has already proven it in your heart. And when Satan comes, you can do exactly what Jesus did. That's not what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that God loves me and the Bible says that that I can trust him. And the Bible says that his promises are true. And the Bible says that he will provide for me. Well, he's not doing a very good job of it. Then you know what? Then I'll be without. I would rather have the favor of God than bread. I would rather have the approval of the father than position. Well, you can't have that position unless you get it for yourself. Then guess what? I won't have the position. Well, you know what? The God you believe in does this and that. Yeah, that's exactly right. The God I believe in loves those who love him. And rewards those who honor him. And you see there are those people who believe in a God. Who would never allow them to be tested or tempted. At the end of verse 13 look what it says. And Jesus was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. Out in the wilderness of of Judea. 
As you leave Jerusalem and you go towards Jericho in the first century, there were jackals and there were hyenas. Some believe that there were jaguars and maybe even lions had survived up until that point. I'm going to, I'm going to suggest to you that the wild beast, when it says, and he was with the wild beast... It doesn't just mean that he's in an empty place where only wild beasts dwell, but there is a sense in which both the creator and the creation begins a process of companionship and reconciliation. You know what I see? I see two lions, one on the left of Jesus and the other one on the right of Jesus, just keeping him warm in the middle of those cold, cold nights. Does it shock you or surprise you that animals can bring comfort and companionship? It shouldn't. And it says, and the angels ministered to him. It's interesting to me that in his trial and his test, Jesus doesn't have any human help whatsoever. But that's not true about you. You see, one of the things that you can do in a part of the plan that you have of resisting and rejecting temptation is to ask for help. This is what the Bible means when it says you pray with one another and encourage one another. Mark says the angels ministered to him. What does that mean? I'm going to suggest to you that it means supernatural beings showed up and invisibly and internally comforted him. The angels showed up and they provided help and hope and ministry and sustenance to the inside. You know, sometimes the pain and the horror and the drama, it isn't on the outside and it is on the inside. And have you ever been in a situation where your mind was so numb and your heart so hurt? And you pray. And you can feel the relief fill your mind and you can feel the relief begin to fill your heart. I'm going to suggest to you that it's possible that some of you may have experienced the comfort and assistance of angels and you didn't even know it. There are physical provisions and there are supernatural provisions Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will make a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. Jesus is approved by the Father. He is equipped by the Holy Spirit. He is tested and proven. And now he's ready for ministry. Have you been approved by the Father? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you been tested and tried? You may be at the beginning of the process. Or you don't even know God. You might need the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. You may be going through a process right now of proving and testing. But remember, it isn't in order to satisfy God's curiosity. 
Do you really believe him? Do you really trust him? Do you really love him? G. Campbell Morgan in his commentary on on Mark concludes the section this way. He says, quote, so Jesus came from Nazareth, where for 30 years he'd lived the self-emptied life, where for 30 years he had been without the prerogatives of sovereignty, which were his in his inherent mystery of his being and found human beings sinning and joining them, repented with them and was baptized. He came to God and had the answer of the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the ratification of his high purpose. He came to Satan and entered into conflict with him and mastered him. And now he's ready to start his ministry with the Father's approval, with the Spirit's equipping. He's been tried, he's been tested. So will you? You'll be tried. You'll be tested. And then you'll be placed in exactly the place where you need to be in order to be useful by him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that. Each and every one of us seek a father's approval. And Lord, we seek the spirit's anointing and equipping. And Lord, we resist sometimes the time of testing. Lord, we know that it will be a stumbling stone to some. And it will be a stepping stone to others. Lord, for those of us who have stumbled and found ourselves wet. Lord, we pray that you would give us the courage to once again. Make an effort to cross the creek. Lord, we know that in order to get from point A to point B. That Lord, we're going to have to trust you. Lord, we sing and we say. I believe you. Lord, we sing and we say. I trust you. Lord. We sing and we say, I love you. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity. To be able to demonstrate that faith and to be able to demonstrate that trust and to be able to demonstrate that hope and be able to demonstrate that love. Lord, we know that we have no power in and of ourselves. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you've overcome the world and we thank you. We thank you that you purpose to fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we would be able to overcome our own flesh, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus Christ, our Lord, has met and vanquished Satan. And so, Lord, we as men and women of God want to love you and trust you. Give us the courage to do so, Lord. Help us to come up with a plan to submit to you, to resist the devil, knowing that he will flee, to not isolate ourselves, but rather to encourage one another and pray for one another and minister to one another and support one another in the ministry that you've called us to. In Jesus name.
Amen. Let's stand.